Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. I am your host, Jason Silo, and I'm thrilled to be joined again for what must be the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the tenth time by my good friend and lifetime colleague, Richard F. Brown. Richard, welcome back to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. It's always an honor to be here. Once a scientist, ten times a prostitute, or however that goes. Wow, I don't know that one. Where's that from? Oh, uh, I'm misquoting Voltaire. Once a scientist, ten times a prostitute. Why does it go? How does the quote really go? Oh, I know what it is. It's it's uh, once a scientist, ten times a pervert. Really? That's not a real quote from Voltaire, is it? Well, you can look it up. Okay, readers, when Richard F. Brown says, well, you could look it up, that's as much acknowledgement as you're ever going to get that he's completely full of stuff that you might find in a horse barn. So we'll move on. Richard, I am thrilled to finally be talking to you about the uh, what superlatives can we throw at over the edge? Jonathan Kaplan's 1979 coming of age teen run amok suburban Colorado masterpiece, Over the Edge, Matt Dillon's first film, a film with cult status, a film that has survived the test of time better, I would argue, than the John Hughes films, an opinion also shared by the director, Jonathan Kaplan. But of course, he would say that, but I wouldn't unless I believed it, and I do. Welcome to New Granada, where people come to escape city life. It has safe streets clean air, good schools. It's a perfectly planned community, but something strange is happening. Something that wasn't part of the plan. Seems to me like you all were in such a hopped up hurry to get out of the city that you turn your kids into exactly what you're trying to get away from. Something that could drive this town over the edge. You are to take these home to your parents, is to let them know about a special emergency meeting to discuss the problems about your people. Mommy's all right. Kid who tells on another kid. They just it's a dead kid. Oh! I don't know how many of us are willing to admit just how deep in trouble some of the kids in this city are. Tension is rising. You people talk about these kids like they're a bunch of animals. <laughs> Tempers are raging. Your son and some of his friends are part of this. My son and his friends are part of this town. Time is running out. And something's got to explode. I can assure you everything is under control. They were old enough to know better, but too young to care. And now this town is over the edge. I think the audience for this podcast is probably very familiar with Over the Edge, but why don't you give us a brief synopsis, if you would, of what's the what's the story of this film? Okay, well, the story of the film is that we have a, a new suburban town coming up in the late 70s, early 1980s. People have relocated from other parts of the country with this idea of sort of pioneering a new, ideal, crime-free uh, 
society to raise their kids in. And what happens to the adults is they're not paying that much attention to what's going on in their children's lives. And then their children uh, start indulging in all kinds of drug use, other uh, types of uh, youth. uh, Sexual behavior. behavior. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Sexual behavior. Robbery. Thievery. Right. You know, Uh, good times, man. Their kids are engaging in all these uh, these uh, terrible behaviors, and the society is not coming together in the way that it was planned to. What's the catchphrase that's spray painted on the housing development? Uh, wide streets, narrow minds. Right. There's also uh, the uh, the sign says "Welcome to New Grenada." Uh, what's what's the where it's crossed out? Do you remember that part? <laughs> um, well, the, the one that I remember that's crossed out is is a, a subdivision of the new Granada sub, suburb is Strawberry Fields. Yes, and that's they, what I was they, And somebody of. wrote, never <laughs> under Strawberry. There's so many great visual things that Jonathan Kaplan and the production designers included. There's a, there's a smiley face, yellow smiley face sticker on the garbage cans. Um, all the production design we'll talk about, but the film was inspired the, the, there's two screenwriters Charles Haas and Tim Hunter and they were I believe they were either colleagues or one was the student of the other at a university um, but basically they were looking for projects to write together and in 1973 the San Francisco Examiner released an article called Mouse Packs Kids on a Crime Spree and this was reporting about kids vandalizing their suburban community in Foster City, California, which is one of these overplanned suburban developments. And the underpinning of the story was apparently that everything had been thought through in this development except what to do with giving the kids anything to do. So the kids, in an absence of a rec center, in the absence of any any stuff planned for them, uh, started to run amok. And they saw this article and for a long time in the in the development of the film and maybe even through some of the filming, uh, the the planned title for the film was going to be Mouse Packs. And then at one point that changed to um, it wasn't over the edge. It was on the edge because I think Kaplan said somehow that tied into the Who song. He wanted to use Teenage Wasteland to end the movie. We'll talk about the end of the movie and the song choice. The soundtrack is also a very important part of it, but there was a reason why they called it On the Edge. I guess they wanted to avoid some other similarity. I can't remember what it was, but basically, once they got a look at the film, they realized these kids were not on the edge. They were over the edge, and that became the title. So that was the impetus for the screenplay, and it is a great idea for a screenplay. I guess the the staying power of the film for me is in its uniqueness. And then there are many unique things that the filmmakers chose to do that sort of subverted the usual studio process that would have resulted in a more run-of-the-mill teen film. And we're lucky that we ended up with what we ended up. And I do think it has a staying power. I think it still holds up. I don't think it feels dated other than in a way that's great in terms of the styling of the clothes and the architecture and all of the other things. Now this ties into the full cast and crew podcast and to your presence on the podcast, because over the edge was was released in 1979 on the heels of the controversy that surrounded 
the release of The Warriors, which we had done on the podcast together, uh, and also The Wanderers. And these were gang-related films that supposedly sparked violence in movie theaters, although with clearer eyes down the road, it's very much a question whether that really was a concern or was sort of a hysteria that allowed that theater owners kind of ginned up on their own. But this film's release was thwarted basically by fears that youth would run amok in suburbs if they saw this movie. Yeah, the studio shelved the movie uh, for what, uh, for a couple of years, right? Yeah, I don't think it, I think that the filmmakers all trace the kind of rebirth or the cult aspect of it to, bizarrely, Joe Papp in the public theater in New York City, which is most well known for putting on, you know, Shakespeare in the Park and other very highbrow theatrical uh, productions. But they had a film program that was devoted to uh, overlooked films. And in 1981, they showed Over the Edge. And I think a lot of people involved in the film credit that with having the film reappraised critically. Uh, And then... I think in the 80s, cable TV, VHS, uh, and then a generation of artists influenced and inspired by this film, notably Kurt Cobain, who frequently mentioned this as his favorite film. And the Smells Like Teen Spirit video is apparently in part inspired by this film. So it's got a lot of love from cineasts, um, but unlike a lot of films like that, Rick, I would say it it resists that pretension in a way, and its power is its authenticity. What do you think? Yeah, I think part of it is that the actors, because for the most part they were uh, the the kids are amateurs who are acting characters that are their own age, mm-hmm. um, and I think that that young people could really sort of buy into that. Uh, as something that felt real mm-hmm. and authentic, like you said. Um, I think that also, as you said, what it's creating from the very beginning is uh, capturing uh, a mood, I think, yeah. you know, that uh, that you and I can both identify with uh, the, the, the sort of, uh, you know, the boredom mm. of, uh, of the suburbs and either our participation in some of the activities that maybe are portrayed in this movie, or at least the fantasy that's portrayed by the end. I also want to say for the listeners that you grew up in Colorado around this time, you would have been 10 years old, uh, more or less in 1979. So I think for both of us who were about that age at that time, you're right. This film gets something absolutely correct about that age And it does so from the perspective of the kids themselves, which I think is something unique to the film. And in a weird way, I wanted to ask you why you thought this was. You know, usually when you have non-actors or kid actors, um, you know, the product can suffer either because the kids are way too polished because they're not normal humans if they're child actors at 12, 13, 14 years old and they're really good, right? then they're not really real kids because they're some sort of freakishly talented thing that isn't really a kid and isn't really an adult, and that could take you out. On the other side, you can often have non-actors, and because they're non-actors, 
it limits the ability for the film to really get off the ground and to embody character and to do things. Yet somehow in this movie, the the use of mostly non-actors and very inexperienced actors doesn't harm things. It kind of helps it. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it's it's a little hard to put your thumb on it, but it never feels cheap. Uh, it never feels like you're uh, in the middle of uh, you know an experiment or something like that. A lot of it has to do with the fact that it's actually pretty well written. I mean, there's there's a, there are several sort of intersecting stories going on here at the same time. We have the story of the parents and their uh, their dreams about uh, businesses, small businesses succeeding and like that mm-hmm. uh, aren't really coming together for them. Um, we have that going on and how that's how their their own anxieties are sort of being pressed uh, down upon the kids. And then we have the thing with the kids and trying to reel in their behavior and piece by piece, they're taking away the only things that the kids have to cling to as far as not just giving them something to do, but something to care about. Mm -hmm. So they, they, there's the, they're going to take away the rec center. Um, And it's, and this sort of taking away their privileges one by one in order to, um, into, in order to punish the kids is gradually making them more and more aggressive and making the movie, um, the, the tension of the movie build up. And another thing that I think they do so well, and I, and I guess in, in reading and watching a lot of the making of stuff, I, I think a lot of this comes from Jonathan Kaplan as a director who, by all accounts, really did a great job working with this cast of unknowns and of children, really. I mean, I think Matt Dillon was 15 years old. Many of the other kids were 13, 14, 15 years old. No one amongst the kids was, as producer George Lido says in one of the making of commentaries, no one was 23 years old playing 16. These were all actual teenagers and pre-teenagers. Um, one of the things that I think he managed to do was rather than like what I think would be the default teenage attitude when we were in college, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, when everything was just so disgusting and you had to be detached from everything. You couldn't care about anything. These kids are still kids. Like even Matt Dillon's character, Richie, I was watching it again last night for probably the third or the fourth time in prep for this. And I was struck finally by the fact that, you know, he rides around on a little BMX bike with a big flag on it that says Richie. He's not so tough, right? He's, he has a caring mother. In fact, the mothers are an interesting thing because most of the mothers as shown are caring, or at least the two protagonists' mothers are shown as the only two parents who kind of give a shit about what's going on here. But Richie is still a little kid. He still has a giant flag on his bike with his name on it, right? Carl is still a little kid. Like, they don't try to make them something that they're not. Like, their voices haven't even changed yet. They're, they're almost prepubescent, right? So it, that, to me, adds an authenticity and a genuineness to it. But it also creates some of the spirit and the soul of the movie, which I think is rewarded by the song choice at the end, which we'll talk about when we get there. But uh, I was really impressed with the cast Top to bottom, including the adults. These are character actors. Uh, the, the adults are, for the most part, 
professional actors, but they also come off as pretty authentic parts of this community that's being uh, invented. Yeah. So the invented community part is also amazing. I mean, you grew up, how far did you grow up from Greeley, Colorado? Well, the last part of the movie, which was the high school riot scene, that was actually filmed in Greeley, Colorado. The first Three quarters of the movie were filmed in Aurora, Colorado, which is actually on the south side of Denver, okay. uh, which is closer to where I grew up. Okay. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that, in a way, I was thinking, you know, I, I'm a good guest for this particular episode because uh, because I'm so enamored particular movie. On the other hand, it's like I was going to, it was like I feel uh, such an association with this place mm-hmm. in the in the in the movie it's almost almost like i feel a little bothered mm-hmm. because uh i grew up as you said at this at this time i was a kid i was a kid and a teenager as as were my uh older brothers and their friend groups and all that at the it was it's all very sort of uh very sort of feels very personally recreated for me when mm. I watched this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, uh, uh, the, the topography, the architecture, what's weird is that I've never heard this movie up until uh, a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not something that ever came through as, uh, you know, a, a, you know, a Colorado based <laughs> movie that the other kids were watching um, at the time that I should have, ain't aware of it, but I haven't, it, it took 50 years for this movie to break through to me. And then going back and revisit an adult, I'm really stunned by uh, just how familiar it all is. Not only, like I said, the, the terrain of the place, but also the, the culture of these kids. So when you're watching the movie now to prep for this, where you just sort of like put in a time machine back to your own, you know, 1979. That's exactly how I felt because <laughs> Uh, when you watch this movie, you have to you'd only have you'd only have to catch a couple of little things that actually tell you where we are geographically. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some signs that point to some some Colorado and Denver uh, locations. But otherwise, if you if you weren't familiar, uh, you might think this is in California or mm. or somewhere else. But from the from the second this movie started, I'm like, this is. This is suburban Colorado somewhere. I knew it immediately yeah. without being without without knowing uh, beforehand. I think the Colorado ness of it, even though the main protagonists amongst the kids and the adults were New York based actors primarily. Um, so Michael Kramer, who plays Carl, our pro- protagonist, uh, Matt Dillon, Harry Northup, Vincent Spano. These are all New York actors, but. The other kids in the school, the ancillary players, the supporting actors were all cast in Colorado. And I think to your point, given that it's 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 the West, it's the Midwest, there's a certain uh, I'm trying to think of another, you know, kid teen film that's, you know, not set in either the bleak Northeast or or Los Angeles. Um, I don't remember where River's Edge was set. Uh, but I think the Colorado nature of this lens, even the adults, even the clueless adults, you know, they're well-meaning. They're trying to strive and aspire to something for themselves and for their kids, but they're just going about it cluelessly and they don't realize they've left the kids out of the equation. But it's hard to paint even 
Carl's parents as evil. You know, they're not abusive per se, although his dad does belt him in the face. But, you know, Richie's mom is presented as kind of a very cool mom who's just got her hands full with a couple of kids and no apparent husband. But I wonder if the Colorado-ness of the setting and of the kids and the decision to film there lent it some of this kind of authenticity. As you said, the, the production design is amazing. Like, the thing that I clicked into immediately watching it again growing up in the 70s, I think every kid's school had some redo with this kind of bullshit modernism that they so perfectly capture in this school that they found, like, those giant blown-up photos of Americana in the cafetorium, mm-hmm. the verbiage of something called a cafetorium. It, that, to me, strikes so clearly home as, as as anyone who went to to grade school in the 70s, right? Like, it's just so brilliant. Yeah. I don't know if you noticed this on the outside of the school. So they used the real school, at least for – they used a real high school in yeah. Greeley, Colorado, for the exteriors and the interiors. Yeah. On the exteriors, they had to put up a new sign because there's no, no real place called New Granada High School. Right. And that they – on the sign, they deliberately yes. dropped one of the letters. <laughs> I love that. Yes, the O is missing show. from school. Yeah. I love it. Right. It's so good. I mean, it, it's just it's just being touched by whoever the art director was to be like, oh, well, we're going to show that this that this sign is actually that we're in a new place with a new school and that it's <laughs> that this this sign is representing that the place is already falling apart. The place is already falling apart. And. And the architecture of the school and the fact that, like, this modernist school building, but then they kept, like, the one-room schoolhouse in the parking lot. I don't know if you noticed that little detail when they, when the kids kind of come back to attack the school at the end. Right. You know, they don't explain it. And Jonathan Kaplan is pretty good. I know that, unfortunately, one of the realities of this film is, for whatever reason, this this DVD is not available in the United States with all of the making of and and um, and commentary tracks, uh, it's available through an Arrow DVD, which is really well done, but that's only available for other regions. So you have to be a freak like me who has a cracked DVD player that illegally plays multi-region DVDs if you want to really jump into Over the Edge as much as I did. But um, one of the things that they talk about, Jonathan Kaplan... Uh, is a director who, you know, I guess if I knew of him, I, I thought of him mostly as a TV director because I think he had a long period kind of in the 80s or the 90s where he did a lot of ER episodes uh, and then did a lot of TV. He made some films. Uh, right. I think it's far. I mean, he made The Accused. We know that. He made The Accused, right? Um, Project X, that's a pretty well-known mm-hmm. uh Matt, Matthew Broderick film, um, Heart Like a Wheel, pretty well known. Um, Shirley Muldowney, talk about a seventies movie, even though that's nineteen eighty three. So mm-hmm. he he had a pretty good film career. He'd made White Line Fever, is the movie that brought him to the attention of the producers of this film. White Line Fever is a seventy five uh, neo noir, I guess, with uh, Jan Michael Vincent, the uh, the late lamented. John Michael Vincent. So Jonathan Kaplan. It's like a, it's like a trucker. Yeah. It's like a drugged up trucker. Drugged movie. up truckers, man. Ball in the jack, you know, you know <laughs> that, that genre. Um, now, it was funny. When I was listening to him on the commentary last night, 
he's super engaged and very verbal and and really smart. And everyone, this is one of those films, kind of like Heather's is a similar film, where everyone involved uh, remembers it incredibly fondly for various reasons. You know, Matt Dillon, obviously, because it launched his career, literally being plucked out of high school truancy to be put into a movie. Uh, some of the other young kids who had had desired to be working actors, you know, this is a big opportunity for them. And, you know, I think that the vibe that he was able to create on the set contributes so much to how the movie has endured. But also in a way, and I mean this, I don't mean this to be non-complimentary, his direction his is kind of workmanlike. It's a bit TV movie-like. It doesn't ever impose itself on anything in the movie. And he talks about this in the commentary. He says, like, you know, you can hear him kind of sounding, and he makes a joke about being an angry old man because he's talking about the way modern films are overcut. Um, and he points out a couple times in the commentary of just letting simple camera on a tripod capture scenes that to him is his job. His job is not to show off or have showy camera movements. And that kind of works, but it also does contribute a little bit to a bit of a TV movie feel, which I wonder if you picked up. Like there's repeated shots where a phone is ringing and you're in a close-up on the phone and then the camera pulls back to the person who's going to come in and answer the phone, which to me feels very TV. Um, I don't know if you thought about the directing that way at all, but I did. Yeah, uh I'm not sure that I have a, a negative opinion of it at all. Sometimes the particularly there's uh, some dramatic scenes with Carl that end with kind of a, a processed shot, you know, yeah, I, I love those that sort of seven, this, that running yeah, shot. I'm not sure if that's exactly, I consider that sort of like TV editing, you know, cause the, uh, cause the video effect is kind of cheap, but <laughs> yeah, but um, that's so effective in the, I think you're talking about the shot where after Richie gets shot, Carl is running away from, uh, Doberman, the police officer, and uh -huh. Kaplan freezes it just on this very, it's a very uh, animated running freeze frame of Carl. It's really effective. But yeah, I, but in a way, that stuff actually feels of a piece. Like, it's kind of, if it, if it had, I don't know, I'm trying to think when we were talking about the Warriors, you know, um, that's obviously a director with real vision. And there are places where that helped that narrative, right? And in some places in The Warriors was kind of the only thing really propelling the story along because it's not really a lot going on there character-wise and acting-wise. The Warriors is not as well acted as Over the Edge, I would say. Yeah, I agree with that. I think I think if you're really going to sort of like categorize the, the strongest uh, elements of Over the Edge, it's going to be the screenplay, the acting, the the setting, and the art direction, um, and that's not to necessarily criticize the um, the direction at all. But it's it's not the thing. The direction is not the thing that stands out uh, for me as why this is a great movie and a great success. I would agree, but you got to add the soundtrack to that as well. Sure. Uh, I mean, it's probably one of the greatest film soundtracks ever. Period. And it uses this period music in a way that, well, you know, period in 77, 78, 79. So we're talking cheap trick, the cars, Van Halen, the Ramones, um, little feet, like other than Jimi Hendrix, uh, everything else is kind of hard rock of the moment. 
in a way that, you know, John Hughes films, which it's hard not to sort of get into a comparison of that would come later, by the way, I think it's important to to illustrate that all the John Hughes high school stuff came after this film. So as influential as those films were, um, you know, to me, this film holds up a lot better. And I think part of that is the, the, the great use of the period rock music that Jonathan Kaplan and, and the and the producers used. But yeah, where, where this movie is positioned sort of in time uh, of film history, what we're doing here in 1979-ish is it's both capturing um, kind of the uh, delinquent uh, vibe of movies from the 1950s, mm-hmm. um, you know, that the uh, the kids are animals. Yeah. Uh, but it's also cursor to 80s teen shopping mall type uh, <laughs> movies, yeah. uh, which were a lot more, maybe a lot more stylized and a lot more professionally acted. Mm-hmm. And this movie is right, is sort of at the 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 end of one era and at the cusp of another. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And to that end, some of the casting stuff is pretty fascinating. You know, Jonathan Kaplan saw a ton of kid actors, but they were all too polished in the way that I was talking about before until he found Michael Kramer, who was a New York City kid who, you know, loved acting and loved theater, had done a couple of movies, a couple of TV movies, but he wasn't as accomplished a kid actor as Vincent Spano was, who's also very good in this and manages to skirt that line I was talking about before, because Vincent Spano is, I think by far and away the best actor in this film. And that includes the adults. He is so good at such a young age, but it's not off putting because he's kind of well cast. But I did read that there was some conversation at the studio where they wanted uh, Matt Dillon to play the Carl character and they wanted Vincent Spano to play the Richie character, or vice, mm-hmm. or maybe they, maybe it was flipped. I'm pretty sure it was uh, Vincent Spano as Richie and Dylan as Carl, which would have been kind of weird and interesting. Now Michael Kramer as Carl is our main protagonist, and I think he's really affecting. I think it's a winning performance, even though he's not he doesn't have the screen presence of Matt Dillon, who is so rough and unpolished as an actor. But it, somehow it doesn't even matter. It's kind of hilarious that everyone in the making of stuff talks about that on the set, they were all like, well, it's Vincent Spano that's going to be the star here because he's clearly got the goods, right? He's just so self-possessed as a kid. And he'd been on Broadway. He just was, he was the real deal. Uh, Matt Dillon was so <laughs> rough and unpolished and so himself and like, untrusting of Jonathan Kaplan as a director because, you know, Jonathan Kaplan would try to explain to him how the eye line worked in terms of like in this sequence, you need to be looking over here, even though the actor in the scene is over here. And Matt Dillon would be like, it doesn't make any sense, Jonathan. Like, it's it's going to look weird. And like Jonathan Kaplan has this anecdote that he tells a lot about having to try and explain this to Matt Dillon many times and be like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like once you see it in the dailies, you'll understand it's flipped from what your perspective is. So it makes sense for the audience. And he just couldn't get it. So he, he finally just resorted to taping a $20 bill to his forehead and said to Matt Dillon, if you look at the $20 bill, the entire time that you're doing these lines, you can have the $20 bill. And he says, Matt Dillon made like 240 bucks through the filming doing it that way. So, right. They were all kind of surprised because 
I don't think it was until people saw Matt Dillon on screen that it's this kind of fascinating example where is there talent there? Yeah, because there's a long career. But I mean, he's not the actor that Vincent Spano was, but it somehow doesn't matter because he's just such a crazy magnetic screen presence, regardless of his ability. It's his look, you know, it's his clothes, it's his hair, it's his... <laughs> um, it, the other thing that's, that is not totally clear all the time is how much of this dialogue is, how mu- is on the page and how much uh, Dylan is uh, just sort of filling in for not remembering his lines. Well, a lot of it was on the page, to, to your credit. Yeah. You know, you, you, cited, you cited the screenwriters, and they're, they're on the commentary track, Charles Haas and Tim Hunter. And they're all pretty clear about what was added by Kramer, what was added by the studio, and then what was accepted from the kids as dialogue. But one of the things Kaplan did was he made sure to allow these kids to put, put the general idea of things in their own words if they had to. I think most of Matt Dillon's stuff was on the page or since the writers were on set, they were there, they were writing, you know, there's a famous uh, anecdote that all of them tell about the casting of Matt Dillon. And one of the things that's funny is I think you read the vice article. There's a vice oral history of over the edge that uh, by Mike Sachs, that was for a while, you know, kind of the most, I think he did it in 2009. It was kind of the most definitive version of the making of this film for quite a while. I think they tell the story in there that, uh, which is so bizarre to think about what a different time this was. Think about a casting director, unsupervised, hanging around a Long Island high school, which is how they were casting. Like, they wanted real kids. It wasn't like this was set up with the school. They basically just were hanging around a high school that they could just walk into. And basically, the story goes, between classes... They were kind of outside looking at all the kids that were skipping classes, and that's where they found Matt Dillon. And he had that voice, right, which makes you think this tough kid must have grown up on the mean streets of Queens or Brooklyn or the Bronx. And they're interviewing him, and they're like, so what does your dad do? And he's like, hey, nothing. And like, well, he must do something. What does he do? He's like, <laughs> hey, he's a stockbroker. So they're like, oh, wait a minute. So this whole thing that you're affecting, like he's a stockbroker, like, you know, you're not even a middle class kid. You're probably an upper middle class kid. Right. What does your mother do? She don't do shit. That was his response. (laughs) Now, what do you do? I plan robbery schemes. You know, he's putting on what they thought he they wanted to hear from him, but they were just so taken by it. Um, And he's 15 years old and. Mm -hmm. Because these were guys, uh, I think he came in for the auditions they were doing in the West Village. And in the 70s, in the West Village, I think, you know, they t- Matt, Dill- Matt Dillon doesn't tell the story, but Jonathan Kaplan and a couple of the other people involved in the production team say, like, I'm pretty sure he thought this was a bullshit scam to get him into a porn movie. Um, because he was just like, this isn't for real, right? Like, I'm not an actor. Like, he just thought these guys were trying to pick up on him, basically. So the unsupervised nature of all this is crazy when you think about most of these kids didn't have their parents there. You know, Michael Kramer, Matt Dillon, their parents didn't come to the set. <laughs> the, the woman who was cast as uh, the head of the, you know, the youth uh, rec center, I think was uh, Michael Kramer's guardian <laughs> on the set. Yeah. Yeah, they assigned uh, they assigned crew people as guardians of these teenagers. I'm just thinking, and like, then, could you could I imagine, like, if if my daughter was cast in a film at age 15, not going to the set, like, 
it's kind of one of those moments where that was a little bit the life we lived, right? Like our parents were working. Um, I mean, in my case, it was a single parent household. So there was a lot of time on my own, but I mean, it's just sort of so strange to think how different society is now that somebody would be like, oh, Matt got cast in a movie shooting in Colorado. He's never acted in his life. Yeah, he could go. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what, going on behind uh you know behind you know off camera here is also really oh, interesting yeah. Party, they, they've, they've shot this movie with with minors in colorado because they want to get around all the <laughs> sort of like child labor laws right. uh, associated with having to film in california that's part of the reason why we're not why this isn't being filmed in california right they're shooting long hours at night mm-hmm. uh for a lot of it then the the crew and the adults who are supposed to be the guardians mm-hmm. are sleeping all day. And the kids, the actors are going wild during the day. They're messing up, you know, yeah. they're, they're, they're vandalizing the hotel. Uh, there's a, there's a story that all the boys talk about, all these boys talk about riding the, the, uh, the prop bikes to go out and see a porn movie in the mm-hmm. middle of the day. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's, there's a, there's a whole movie here for Richard Linklater to make about, uh, the the cast of actors behind the scenes of the making of this movie. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the the behind the scenes stuff is 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 probably pretty damn close to what's going on on screen. And I don't think you could make this movie nowadays. I mean, a similar movie, Kids, right? Which which looked at like kind of out of control, you know, kids in New York City in the '90s. You can't even watch Kids now. It's not available to stream anywhere because. You know, maybe liberties taken uh, in the filming of it with actual teens or preteens meant that it's just too uh, it's it's too dangerous and possibly litigious for it to even be seen, even though it's like a very critically acclaimed film. Um, I don't think you could make this movie. I mean, the first few lines of this film are so shockingly uh, impressively on point that I'm shocked by them because there's kind of like this pan across the rec center. And one of the supporting cast is a girl who can't be 11 or 12. And she's the one with the really white blonde hair. And she's basically telling a story about being interrupted by someone's parent in the living room and the parent is acting shocked. And she didn't understand why the parent was shocked until she realized it was because her top was down. I mean, it's like literally like a 10 or 11 year old girl is telling this story. And then there's like drug sales and it's just, it's shocking until I was like, well, yeah, I mean, my friends in high school were extremely sophisticated about drug sales and packaging and, one of our group had the had the PDR on his uh, in his room. Do you know what that the is? PDR. Yeah, the physician's desk reference. <laughs> okay. So this is like a book that doctors have, so that you could investigate like counter indications between drugs. So like, if you're on this pill and you took this pill, what would happen? That's sort of like what you would leaf through this this desk reference book to learn about the drugs and to learn about, you know, dosages. And, and you know, and this is when we were 15, 16 years old. Uh, there's a throwaway shot in the film that made me laugh out loud, which is when the kids are looting the high school. One of the kids runs by with a triple beam scale. Now, in the late 70s, in the 80s, if you were going to sell drugs, 
the best that you could get in a pre-digital era was the triple beam balance scale. That, oh, that's how you that's how you could measure your product appropriately. And it's just such a specifically great shot in the film because every teenage drug dealer looks at that and understands exactly why that kid is stealing that from the school. <laughs> yeah, I have to say that eluded me, but you got a good eye. Well, you had a much more, uh, let's say, like, I, I don't think you were quite as troubled a child growing up, per se. You were doing the drugs, let's say. Well, you were more yeah, like, I, you know, doing, um, you know, you were like an engaged student at school, involved in activities and clubs. Right. Yeah, I, I, I think what what I get uh, what I most associate here is basically the downtime. It's these these kids when they aren't being supervised and they're just sort of like riding their bikes around the streets mm-hmm. uh, and getting into a lot of uh, mischief. Well, you mentioned the porn movie story, which they all tell in a kind of hilariously horrified fashion, because, you know, being those kind of overconfident 15, 16 year olds with a lot of time on your hands, they tell the anecdote about riding around on their bikes and finding a tiny porn theater somewhere in the middle of Colorado. And basically some old guy just lets them in, even though they're just clearly children. And, um, I think Vincent Spano says Matt Damon, Matt Dillon was like, come on, man, let us in in the movie, man. And the guy's <laughs> like, okay, you can go in. And it turns out they're seeing a film called Long Gene Silver, which uh, mm-hmm. I encourage people to look up information about. Luckily, you can't look up any scenes, which I don't think anyone wants to see, because the, the actress in Long Gene Silver was a woman who had lost a foot and had only a, a stump which I've seen described as a chicken wing. So that if you imagine her leg below the knee was sort of mangled and looked like a chicken wing. And she used this to penetrate her sexual partners. That was the Mm -hmm. construct of this actor's career in the adult film industry. Right. So these three kids thinking this was going to be a lark walked into this movie theater and ended up being basically scarred for life over what they were seeing, which I think is brilliant. And they all still talk about it like up to two, three years ago. Like I think Matt, Matt Dillon says like, I've still never seen anything as, as horrific as that. And one of the other guys goes, I mean, this is Matt Dillon. We're talking about, he's seen some stuff now. So, right. Um, yeah. And again, this is behind the scenes of this uh, movie about uh, delinquents. Mm-hmm. There's another story that one of the kids at the party tells, uh, who's the, the the scene of the party, where he claims that a, he didn't have any acting experience either. And he claims that whatever they wanted to get out of him as an actor, he wasn't producing. Um, and so that they took oh. him <laughs> off camera, opened up a trunk of a car uh, and... Uh, filled a couple of solo cups full of vodka and made him uh, drink them and then and then put him back on camera. Yeah, he's the one hold, hosting the party where the Van Halen, uh, the brilliant use of uh, You Really Got Me uh, from Van Halen is used. And it's such a great representation of a high school party from the era. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the host of the party is the kid you're talking about. who They basically got drunk. And then put him. <laughs> you can see that his cheeks are so red and flushed. Um, hilarious. And yeah, I don't know if the story is true, but it gives it looks you a true. flavor of, of what was going on on, on what was going on screen uh, was uh, very similar to what was going on uh, off screen. And there's a in that same party scene, 
when the Carl character sees his love interest with the Vincent Spano character, gets kind of bummed out and leaves. He talks to Richie White, played by Matt Dillon, as he walks out the door. And and Matt Dillon on his arm has this very beautiful braces wearing Colorado blonde girl teenager who in this this kind of close up shot, you can see Matt Dillon kind of goes in to kiss her. And it feels very real. Her reaction feels like she's probably never been kissed before. And even though he's not yet in quotes, Matt Dillon, he still had that aura and presence on the set because he's this tough kid from New York City, even though he's a stockbroker's kid from Long Island. Let's just be clear. Um, So I think a lot of that adds to the verisimilitude that you're talking about. I think the the geography of Carl's room is great. I kind of wish we had seen Matt Dillon's room. Like we see the exterior of his uh, his housing project, really, which almost feels like kind of a British council flat of estates. Like one of the things they do pretty well in the limited architecture of the production design is you have where Carl lives and where, you know, some of the other kids live, uh, Claude, um, you know, the drug dealing kid, they all live in these kind of condos, which are very nice. And they sort of feel like the wealthy part of town. And then you have like Richie lives over in, you know, an apartment block that sort of has laundry lines and graffiti and garbage and stuff. So they, they kind of indicate a class thing. But one of the things that's cool about the movie is it doesn't do what John Hughes movies would do, which is divide up all the kids into different groups. Yeah, we don't have clicks no. at this high school. And I don't know how much of that is uh, is purposeful or not. It's just supposed to show that the kids are unified um, you know, in terms of, uh, uh, of status. Uh, and it's really the kids versus the adults instead mm-hmm. of kids versus kids for the most part. Yeah, and I think that's what gives it part of its power, too. It didn't really occur to me watching it a couple of times until I heard one of the one of the I, when I heard them talking about it on the commentary track. And then I was like, oh, yeah, that is cool. Like, there's a specific shot after um, the two girls shot, steal a gun from a house that they break into. And uh, after a scene in an abandoned condo that Carl and Richie hang out in and bring uh, the girls to, there's a shot where they're all walking down the street. All the kids are walking down the street together. And it's that togetherness of this aspect of of kiddom that I think the film does really well. Because if I'm not mistaken, before you get to the subdivisions of the high school halls, as Rush ably quoted, there is a brief moment in childhood when everyone's kind of together, right? Like yeah. if, I, if I look at my fifth, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh grade class photos, there's no division. We're all equally dressed in the same kind of dorky 70s clothing. We didn't really have the people hadn't sorted out yet. I don't know if the sorting out more typically happens in high school, maybe, you know, maybe because these kids were young enough, even though they're portraying high school kids, maybe that contributed to this sense that we're talking about. But that's a strength of the film that 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 as such doesn't it doesn't age them and it doesn't age their characters. Because yeah, there's there's a there's a shot uh, when they're in the schoolyard. Uh, it's one of the shots of the graffiti that says uh, jocks are fags. Oh, I didn't see that. And, yeah, it says jocks are fags. And it's like that is transgressive. <laughs> I mean, it, it didn't even occur to me until we until we got to that scene. I was like, yeah, where are the jocks? Where are the 
Hmm. Where are the cheerleaders and the uh, and the uh, uh, National Honor Society kids? Where yeah. where you know where are the divisions among these these kids? And like I said, it's not it's just not set up that way. And I don't know how much of it is a the time because certainly when we get a few years down the line, you get into the John Hughes type of movies, you are getting all of these uh, conflicts between uh, between groups of kids, and this movie have that. Yeah, I think you know. Uh, I, I mean, I guess it's. I guess it's. I guess it's a little bit of a conflict to say jocks or fags, but there are no jocks in the movie, right? And and I think it's a combination. I'm trying to. I'm, I'm kind of struggling to think if they really addressed it. I know that they talked about the idea that you know Jonathan Kaplan really wanted them all to be in it together, and it's probably that if you tried to delineate them into the jocks, the stoners, the burnouts, the honor student kids, like it becomes kind of a weighty shorthand that you have to sort of engage in, which works maybe better in a John Hughes type film, which isn't quite as serious as this film yeah. is. Um, but I do also think that it's, it is about that sweet spot of childhood. And my argument for that is I think borne out by the very bold choice, which is an accidental choice to use the song Ooh Child by Valerie Carter over the final scene of the film and the credits. And it's as the kids who have been constantly threatened by Doberman, the, the out of control cop with going to what do they call it? The Hill, um, mm-hmm. which is like the juvenile detention facility in the area. You know, you're going to go to the Hill. You're going to go to the Hill. Well, at the end of the film, after they've completely, you know, blown up cars, trashed the high school, vandalized the whole community. You know, the aftermath of that is they're walking out of court. I think they might even be in handcuffs. I'm not sure. And then they 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 board essentially a prison bus and they're trans this this large group of them is being transported to the juvenile facility. And it's a wistful moment. This to me is what I first responded to and remembered about seeing this film when I first saw it probably in the the mid to late 80s it was that sequence that captured me and just broke my heart and blew me away And to find out now that that was not at all what Jonathan Kaplan wanted to end the film with, he wanted to end the film with Teenage Wasteland by The Who. And he had cut the whole final sequence really meticulously to reference the lyrics to that song. And they're all wasted, which he was really fixated on the double meaning of that. They're all wasted. They're all on drugs. But they're also 
full of potential that's being wasted by these adults. Like he really, really, really wanted to end the film with that and loved it. And it sounds like he still thinks that's the best ending. But of course, they couldn't afford the song. Uh, Now, to me, I can't imagine this film ending on any other song. I think it is such a brilliant, um, brilliant, mournful use of the song. And the way the kids are on the bus is so perfect. They're not talking to each other. It's that kind of golden hour. And they're all, it's like if you're driving in a car at golden hour, you can't help but feel a little wistful and a little melancholy. And they're all looking out the window as if contemplating what's occurred, almost as if they don't like what's happened. And that's indeed what our main protagonist articulates. He's had enough, he says. He's not a bad kid. He doesn't want to destroy everything. He just wants to be understood and listened to. And then the- f- And left alone. And left alone. Um, and as they drive on the bus, they're all, the, the wind is blowing through the windows. And even the cop on the bus is, is, looks wistfully out the window as if there's a collective understanding that we've gone wrong here in this, in this microcosm of society. And we can, we can come back from this trip to the hill better. And I couldn't think of any song that embodies that better than Ooh Child, which of course, you know, things are going to get easier. Things are going to get better. Uh, things will get brighter. Like it's brilliant. Uh, I don't know if you responded to that as strongly as I did, but that, that's a huge, that's the first thing that this, that I remember when I think of this film, that scene. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's effective to have this, this movie, which is pretty negative. We've got, mm-hmm. a, you know, we've got, uh, uh, a child being shot by the police. And mm-hmm. then we got uh, all the destruction of the school and all the destruction of the property. And then the cop himself uh, who has a little bit of a redeeming moment near the end. And then he ends up getting killed. And I think it's, uh, I think it's valuable to have a sort of a moment of hope instead yeah. of just bleakness. I agree. I mean, Kaplan is at goes at great pains to say, a, you know, he can't believe he was allowed to get away with all the stuff that he did get away with in the film, which I do agree with. But B, also, he's like, you know, other than Doberman and Richie, all the violence is towards objects. It's not directed at other people. Uh, even the Doberman death doesn't feel like you're not cheering for that. Like, what a horrible way to go. It's basically burned, yeah. up, burned up in a fire. Um, and there's some real tension to that scene because Carl is handcuffed to the back of the cop car and the the car is on fire and the Quonset hut is on fire and you know doberman is is passed out or dead already so he can't unlock carl so it's like that's a very tense moment another funny thing about the making of the film was that the special effects guy in charge of all the explosions and there were a lot of explosions um his nickname was boom boom Mm. And his nickname was Boom Boom because he was famous in the industry for way overdoing the gasoline on his explosions, which I think is very apparent here. Uh, Not only are there hilarious moments where a not even a um, it's like a pump action BB gun, not even like an air gun. Right. It's not using compressed air, which does hurt if you've ever been shot with a BB gun. But the BB gun that um, causes this whole chain of events to unfold is one of those ones that kind of like you cock once and it just is like a spring loaded BB gun, which really is not enough a to break the windshield of the cop, which starts off the whole problem. B it's not enough to knock Vincent Spano off his motorcycle, which Carl does later in the film. Uh, And then, you know, some of the, some of the destruction scenes 
involve kids lighting M80s and like cars going up as if there's a hundred tons of TNT in them. It's incredible. <laughs> and like, I guess it's not a place for verisimilitude, but I just thought that was hilarious. Well, it's funny because you don't notice it as much on the on the on the if you if you watch it a few times, you don't notice it as much the first time. You're like, oh, explosions. You're just sort of used to that in any kind of movie of this era. Right. But when then you go back and watch it again and you really are paying attention to what is, uh, you know, igniting the uh, the explosions, they're pretty over the top. <laughs> I mean, I think somehow the Vincent Spanico character gets a hold of a shotgun and he fires into a trunk. Uh, uh-huh. And the car just, it, it goes up with the mo. It's like the guy has a 50-gallon drum of gasoline that he's igniting. So Boom Boom definitely earned his pay. Not, not only that, but he shoots into the he shoots into the trunk of the car, and then, and then the car, <laughs> there's two or three of them that all pretty much go up at the same time. Hey, Boom Boom went Boom Boom. I mean, yeah, I guess so. It's pretty- I don't know if it was just a... I don't know. It's, it's not a good reflection on uh, American, uh, uh, you know... <laughs> Gas American tank construction car safety. Yeah. Yeah. Are the gas tanks in those big old seventies cars underneath the trunk? I don't even know where they are, to be honest with you. Well, I guess it kind of depends on the car, but there was all kinds of uh, problems with American cars and, you know, people getting rear ended in a Pinto and then their, and their car would explode. Well, I remember the Pinto uh, so, cause we had a yeah. Pinto. So the Pinto gas tank was sort of stupidly located like right under the back bumper or something. So if you did get rear ended, you were going to blow up and die in a fire. Um, so I think maybe we've got some of that going on. <laughs> I don't know. The movie has staying power, man. I, I think it's um, it's 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 unlike a lot of cult movies. I guess you call it a cult movie, but it still has power. And I and I think what's great about it, just to kind of wrap up our conversation, is that to me the power comes from the kids. And I think, however, Jonathan Kaplan was able to allow that to come through. He really did. Uh, to me, this is so much more a worthwhile film than all of the John Hughes films, which the older I get, the less I think of. I don't think those films hold up very well. I know that they're, you know, pop culturally interesting to sort of ironically watch. But, you know, those movies don't tell us anything truthful about teen life that's important. Those are just those are just freely, you know, baubles of films that are tangentially important it annoys me almost that i was getting tweets yesterday because i guess they're putting out a box set of songs from all the john hughes movies it's like well yeah i mean we already have all those songs not like those songs were made famous by the john hughes movies just using the songs of the moment which guess what was kind of pioneered in over the edge 10 years earlier but okay yeah i'll try not to be too exercised about it Mm -hmm. anyway what else would you like to say about this film richard well, I, I mean, as I said before, uh, I was I felt really like personally addressed by this movie. I'm almost embarrassed by how much I, I, I like it. Mm-hmm. You know, lately I've been uh, trying to come up with a list of uh, movies that I think are just like absolutely rated 100, 100 on a scale of one to 100 mm. are as watchability recommendability there isn't anything that i would change about them and i'm i'm prepared to add over the top to that list among or say over the edge to the <laughs> list of uh of uh 
movies that are just perfect to me. Wow, I mean, what a waste of a brilliant setup with the, with then using a title of a film you you, you botched. But I, I understand what you're saying. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about for you personally, like these. This me goes on. Your, yes. Okay. I'm putting this in the category of my favorite films of all time. Well, I think that's like if there's something that this podcast aims to be about, it's the essence of what you're talking about, right? Which is that there's something about this film, and it's not the story. It's not per se even the performances, it's something else that we're still not quite putting our finger on. And I think the fact that we can't quite put our finger on it is the thing we're talking about. It's, yeah. that, it's that there's an essence of a 70s childhood that has got right. And if you lived yeah. through that time, whether you were a kid who was a juvenile delinquent or like Carl, a very normal, well-intentioned, well-rounded kid who uh, is just not being tended to by society, you're going to relate to this film because it gets that right. It gets that moment of our childhood so right. And I think does so lovingly, even as the events on screen can be shocking, you know, in terms of the drug use and the sexual activity that's that's alluded to, and certainly the destruction, uh, which I always kind of have to chuckle at myself that I'd never even really occurred to me how fucked up it is that these kids are locking their own parents into the school and basically trying to burn them alive. Um, mm -hmm. That never feels as fucked up as it really is. It feels like what it is for them, which is, hey, guys, pay attention. Like, yeah. what's going on here? That's why it's so genius to me how it ends, because everyone comes together. There's the, the parents are together watching the kids go away. And there's kind of this feeling that I think we all had in the 70s that um, stuff was fucked up and we had to get through it and it's okay. And I think that's why it's almost so impossible to think of the movie ending with any other song. I, would, it's, I, I wouldn't even want to see on a DVD uh, what it's like cut to Teenage Wasteland. That's how special the ending of the film is. I want to, I want to preserve it, I think, to your point, because it also speaks to me and to my childhood. So if anyone hasn't seen this film, you can definitely rent the film. Um, you can stream it in a number of places. Um, when I was referring to a, the Arrow DVD that's not available in the States, that doesn't mean that you can't see this film widely. It just means that all of the extras remain frustratingly out of reach for an American audience. Um, but do seek out the movie. Uh, check out the vice making of article which is a really good sort of juicy behind the scenes rundown which will give you most of the information that's contained in the making of featurettes and richard that means that now we wrap up this episode and we start to look to the future of what we're going to do next i hope you have some thoughts and ideas um because i don't have any right now but i'll figure out that you'll come up with something in the next week or so it's going to be tough what could be better than over the edge or, or whatever this movie's or called. Over the Top. Let's do Over the Top. Isn't that a Sly Stallone arm wrestling film? I'm sure Maybe you meant that was great. a 100% perfection movie. Maybe you got your movies confused. You thought we were doing Over the Top, the Sly Stallone arm wrestling film. Uh, don't change a thing. <laughs> okay. All right, Richard. Thank you so much for joining me. And I will speak with you next time on Always the Full Casting Crew thank you. podcast. Always a pleasure. Thank you.